What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Lease here with my co-host Richard Harris, and we're brought to you today by our good friends and sponsors at Gong, Vidyard, Findem, Perception Predict, and Lead 411. I got them all, Richard. The list is growing. We're super proud and happy to be. Uh, and you didn't mess them up. I know I didn't. <laughs> to share the stage with these companies, they've got great products and great people. Today. We are joined by Surf and Sales alum from Surf and Sales 1, I believe, the original, the OG, the one and only Mary Grothy, CEO, founder of Sales BQ, who has some super exciting news that we're going to tease a little bit, and it involves a rebrand of sorts. Welcome to the show, Mary. This is a reunion. I hope everybody has as much fun as we do today. That's awesome. It is a reunion. We were actually laughing a little bit beforehand because Mary was remembering there was a decent amount of bugs and mosquitoes and crabs on the ocean uh, and all this. Not, not really what we should be doing if we want people to go to this event. Oh, I mean, not, the point is like, you know, Mary's not necessarily like, you know, a nature kind of girl. And, no. and so this, this was a big deal for her to get out into, into nature. And it was, it was a big moment. So it was, it, it was, was. yeah, things were dive bombing like into my face and I had uh, my hair's long again, but it was even longer than this. And it was curly and all like red it up in a big bun. And it was a perfect nest for whatever was flying around. And they were just dive bombing and getting stuck in my hair and, I'm not built for nature. I cannot believe I went to Costa Rica. It was my actual like first by myself trip outside of the United States. I've been to Mexico a few times and I was mortified of taking the trip, but I have to say it was super life-changing. You guys got to be there and help me through a really pivotal moment in my life. And I haven't looked back. I mean, I can't believe it's been two and a half years. You know, that's wild. Let, let's talk about it a little bit. Tell everybody, you know, what you do at Sales BQ and, you know, tease a little bit of the direction that you're, uh, that you're headed. Yeah. I'm a former number one B2B mid-market sales rep. That's my claim to fame. I've got the crystal on my shelf. I'm very proud of it. I worked very hard and I love sales. Sales profession has come natural to me. I have great love for it. And there are a lot of people out there that want to excel in this profession. So naturally, when I was ready to hang up my sales hat and start a company, I set out on a mission to rebuild sales departments and to bring the know-how, the wisdom, the energy into these sales departments, breathe life into them and to help develop the talent, bring in new talent, rebuild infrastructure. And that's how SalesBQ was born. It was a very interesting first few months because it was a cool concept. I had a couple of CEO friends made my first few sales and I was the solopreneur doing all the work. And I had three brave CEO clients at the end of 2017, early 2018. And I said, Hey, if each of them pay me about three or $4,000 a month, I can have a decent income. So bringing in just over 10 grand and I will split my time in thirds and run their sales departments. Well, it worked. And it was exciting and word of mouth. And all of a sudden there was a demand and I started to panic thinking, do I want to grow a company? Do I want employees? 
Or should this just be a lifestyle business? Because now that I'm proving my success, I can up my rates. I could double what I'm charging. That could be 20 grand a month with no overhead, get to be a consultant, three clients, I'm like make my own schedule. This doesn't sound bad. I'm fine with that. <laughs> you know, this is great. Q surf and sales. It was, we, I don't have to tell you the whole story now, but the pivotal point was I told both these guys when I showed up that I had to make a decision. There was a demand for what we were doing. And I was either going to just go into wait list mode and refer out business to a network and make money off of partner referrals and only take on a few a year, or I was going to put my big girl pants on and grow a company. And the decision was made after surf and sales to put my big girl pants on and grow a company. And I'm so proud. We just crossed the $2 million mark in three years. We have 12 employees and something happened about 18 months ago. Rebuilding sales departments was our claim to fame. However, sales is one part of the revenue equation. And if a CEO is only making an investment in developing the sales team, they are only going to go so far. We didn't have a say in our clients' marketing. We didn't have a say in their customer success. And we didn't have a say in the tech stack. Some of our clients didn't even have a CRM. They were working out of Excel spreadsheets, wanting salespeople to send every email manually. There was no visibility into data tracking reporting out of outside the salespeople self-reporting every week, how many dials they made. And I know those were accurate <laughs> reports. Oh yeah. <laughs> we reached this turning point and we made the decision again, another pivotal moment. I'll, all, all we do is grow our, our clients' revenue. The only reason we exist is to grow their revenue. And we were held back. So we made a decision. Our clients said, yes, we doubled the size of our company, organically grew a full service marketing offering as well as customer success. And we also have a RevOps division. We're a HubSpot agency partner, as well as partners of 14 other technologies. And we work with our clients now for a year um, at a time. And we come in as staff AUG with a VP of marketing revenue, cover sales and customer success and RevOps and our deep marketing bench. We come in, we rebuild the entire revenue flow, revenue ecosystem for the whole company. I love, like, it's amazing, Mary, you know, from just listening to you speak versus where I really know you from, from surf and sales, you know, two and plus years ago, right? Like, just like, I'm sitting here going, wow, she's crushed. She's just knocked it out of the park. Like she just, even the way you sound and how you're speaking and what you're talking about is just amazing. So I'm, I'm super proud to have known you. Um, you know, and, and to watch you grow and it's, it's super exciting. Um, but one of the things I, you know, we're, Scott and I actually just released a post yesterday um, talking about sort of revenue operations, right? And um, so, so is your mind in the business sense of like, hey, we're revenue operations for hire. And in addition to the sales side, is that sort of where, you know, what you, in your 18 months, that's what you're defining, I, I'm assuming. Yes, it was a necessity and it was born out of the needs of our clients. I'd like to take credit and think I'm really smart and innovative, but what I do know what to do is how to listen. And I know how to be a complex problem solver. So the clients with their tech stack suck. Right, right. So what are those things you heard your, you know, so I heard you talk about they're calling out of Excel, which is what Scott does. Um, he has no CRM. Um, That's right. So we just still, had still 2000, it's 2004 up in here still. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they need, they need to have a level of a CRM. 
they need to have um, some level of sequencing or cadencing tool, right, for, mm-hmm. for communications. What are the other things, like think about whether it's customer success and platforms or marketing, like what are those other pieces that you're, that, not the tools, but what are you hearing your customers say so that other mm-hmm. people, because we, we think 2021 is a huge revenue operations year, like it's going to blow mm-hmm. up way more than it has. Um, so what are those other things your customers say that helps you see these light bulbs, find these light bulbs? It was a fragmented experience for the buyer from the first touch point with marketing through being a part of customer success. And the buyer experience or customer experience, as you hear these terms, there's so many opinions on both sides of the fence with some of these buzzwords, especially the, the buyer's journey and mapping to that, but it's real. Think about when you buy something as a human being, what's your experience? I feel like there's so many advances in B2C, but in B2B, it's a clunky mess. And if you know that you have a marketing team that's interacting with a buyer in one way, shape or form, and potentially a different tech stack with different people. And that visibility is closed off to the salespeople that are then interacting with that same buyer. It's very frustrating when the buyer has to start over and to rebuild a relationship from scratch, or when you have a clunky handoff or the salesperson just simply doesn't have visibility. And then also between those two teams, I'll get into customer success in a second, but between those two teams, between marketing and sales, there's also no visibility. And so if you're looking at attribution tracking and trying to figure out what of marketing is, which marketing tactics are influencing sales and your success between the two. If you're not on a, a single platform or an integrated platform where you have seamless data flow and you also have overlapping ability to, to view the metrics, then you're missing out. And it's very frustrating when marketing and sales are held accountable to different goals and they're not aligned and they're compensated, not to the same goals, like marketing should make you money. That's our motto. Marketing should make you money. If it's not making you money, why are you doing it? And if you can't view if it's making you money or not, then you have a significant problem. But then I grew up in the world of payroll and HR sales. And we had completely different tech stack and completely different teams between the sales handoff and customer success. And it was the biggest complaint of our customers. They would go through months of a sales cycle, pour out their heart and soul in the process, and we'd have everything mapped out. And the very first call from customer success would be, so tell me about your company which is the absolute biggest face palm ever. The clients don't want to do that. They want seamless and they want to have the ability for the customer success or implementation or operations, any of those uh, team members to be able to look back and understand who this buyer is, the pains and problems that have been petitioned to be solved, how the company is going to help, and it should be a seamless experience. Well, revenue operations is tracking, it's creating a seamless experience from the customer lifecycle, from very first touch point with marketing through renewal, upsell, or offboarding of a client. And the teams need to have visibility. And whoever your revenue executive is should be able to look into one dashboard, one system, and be able to see all the data points. The data points should tell a story. It shouldn't be this manual lift of marketing reporting independently, of sales reporting independently, of customer success. And we, when we get to work with our clients, the first thing we do is we audit all of this to find out where the gaps are, do a gap analysis. Sometimes these gaps are (laughs) the list. I mean, it's just ongoing. So what did we find? Lack of visibility into the data, inability to make appropriate growth decisions because they weren't sure how to increase efficiency and set themselves up for scale, which scale is different than growth. And the customer experience 
was jolty and it wasn't aligned. And so it, you, you have one revenue cycle, but yet most companies have three so siloed departments with these brick walls or cement walls in between and to a customer, that's not a good experience. So who, so thank you for the short answer. I'd like to hear the long one. So who owns, I, I can only say that because I know Mary, but the first time I met Mary, you know, we were at Surf and Sales, we were sitting across from the table at lunch and she looks at me and goes, who are you? What are you doing? Like, tell me why you're here. Why, why should I be here? Like just super direct. So that's why I felt like I could say that. Um, who owns this? Now, we know it's the CRO. Do you recommend a business sales background CRO or do you recommend the marketing CRO? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what an interesting question. I would rather have a sales-focused CRO with a killer VP of marketing underneath. I say that because I have found more revenue leaders that are strong in sales with a great understanding of marketing. That's good. But I struggle to find phenomenal marketing leaders that really understand sales. And I think it's a rarity to find that based on our Daryl Prale, uh, who's a good friend of ours, been on the show. If you don't know him over at Vanilla Soft. He's that CRO with the, with the marketing background and he does get it. So I, I agree. I know he's going to listen to this and be like, what? But there's my shout out to you, Daryl. So. Oh, I follow him. It's, it is a rarity. Yeah. yeah. So what's, what's been the biggest surprise as you scaled this business, right? Like, um, <laughs> you know, what, what was like, oh, nobody told me that moldy cheese was here. Oh my gosh people problems. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may. Meaning having, having to deal with other humans is hard. It's so I, hard. I, it's Scott, so hard. This is Scott's, this is Scott's favorite. Oh, he's so excited to hear this. <laughs> um, I'm an optimist and I truly believe in the good of all people to a fault. And I genuinely care about them. They're my employees, but I don't treat them like employees. They're our team. We work collaboratively. I take the responsibility of not only them, but their families. I care about them deeply. I want them to be successful. But I had a lot of resetting expectations to do in the early part. Was it from the two of you that I learned the 175 rule? Did that come from you? Where on the best day, I can't remember, I learned it right around that same time of surf and sales. It was you or Gary V, you know. One of same the difference. It's exactly the same. <laughs> so I learned through one of the three of you that founders and CEOs tend to be very talented, brilliant risk takers, the ones that really take off and do very well. We can handle a lot of risk, a lot of pressure. We're very nimble. We're complex problem solvers. And we are very good chief everything officers and can really do any function in the business. We also have so much skin in the game that we have high figured out factors and do whatever it takes ethically to succeed. We are 100s. 
CEOs go to make their first hire, they want to hire another 100 and they build their plans to have another 100 in the role. So if I look at, hey, I was able to sell 450,000 in revenue in the first year and service like 70% of it. So then I go to hire my first salesperson. So I should, if they're doing it full-time and I was doing sales part-time, I should be able to give them an $850,000 quota, right? No. <laughs> exactly. So the challenge is CEOs go to make these growth hires and they think I can just take the equation from what I did and just multiply it now times two. And that's false. On the best day, the person that you bring on board will only be 75% of who you are as a hundred. On most days, there are 50. Build the plan to 50% of yourself and then be excited when they hit a 75 over time as someone starts really proving themselves and performing extremely well, regardless of the role, not just a sales role, they may move into being an 80 or an 85. And that's when your alarm bells should start going off. You either need to allow them to buy in. You need to give them deferred compensation. You need to do something to retain the talent, or they will go off and become a 100. They're going to start their own company and they're not going to work for you anymore. So there's a misunderstanding when it comes to those first hires. And I, so, so that was one of my early mistakes. The second mistake that I made in scale was not separating expectations with clients. I was doing sales. They're like, great. So we get to work with you. Like, no, I'm drowning. I already have seven clients. You have to work with so-and-so. And it was a disappointment to them. And so I had to learn through scale in order for us to scale that I had to articulate and set the right expectations out of the gate that I don't do client work and that who they're going to be working with and really setting that person up for success early on just to avoid some of the misaligned expectations. Those were hands down my two biggest challenges out of the gate. Well, that wasn't me that came up with that 175 uh, rule, but I, I have for a long time gone into early stage company, figured out what I can sell while also doing all these other things and then divided it in half to set a quota. And I've been doing that and preaching that for a really long time. And that's very similar to what, uh, what you're talking about. So I feel, I feel very validated right now, Richard. <laughs> But it was, it, maybe it was you or maybe it was Gary V, but you it know. wasn't me. Okay. Um, but so here's my question. What is that founder or CEO? And, and even Scott, I know you can answer it too, but for Mary, so you walk in and you tell them and they're like, they don't want to believe it. Right. Yeah. What do you, and, and I preach this too. Like I always say, look, you're selling because of your title. You're selling because it's your baby. Right. What do you tell that that founder or CEO who's having a hard time accepting that reality, or is that your red flag to say, I'm not going to work with this person? Yeah. So that would be our third biggest mistake that we made in our first year was working with companies that were too small or didn't fit our ICP from a psychographic standpoint. And let me elaborate because I can't say anything in less than 5,000 words. Psychographic, by the way. I know. That is an amazing word that I, I need to think about and steal from Mary right there. Psychographic. I get it. There's like 20 things Mary said so far that I'm like, oh yeah, I, I know that too. I should use that. I like that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> so. God, this is, this oh is why gosh, she's grown to where she is and why we haven't. So. That's right. She's That's the right. risk taker. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, stop it. <clears throat> so we learned, Richard, the CEO sale is what we call what you were just describing. 
and they will win and they will sell because of their title, the clout and their intimate knowledge of the problems they solve, who they solve them for and how they solve them. And it's very hard to replicate that. Plus people will look at a CEO and believe they have more credibility. And if you look at the trust equation in sales, there's a perceived self-interest. And the only way to lower that is through business intelligence and credibility. And that's where you start mastering trust. A CEO can do that much faster than a salesperson. Therefore they win. They win often. They win quickly. Even if they're very bad salespeople, (laughs) they can find themselves winning. The VP of sales can do the same thing over an account executive Mm -hmm. at a a lesser degree, perhaps Mm -hmm. um, than the founder and the CEO, but it's just, it's the same equation, you know, yes. there's, there's, there's a, I should be able to sell better than an AE. Otherwise, why am I in this sales leadership role? How did I get out of that role in the first place? Of course I should be better than that. I should yeah, be. Absolutely. Yeah. But so, they yeah. struggle with understanding that other people can't just walk in and, and do that. I mean, so we learned that we figured that out fast. So we had to make a pivot. We had to ask tougher questions and have stronger screening and due diligence, or we didn't let them work with us. And the other thing that we did was we went up market. Initially, we were working with companies in that one to $3 million range. I was actually really passionate initially about helping them with their first sales hire. So this was what I dealt with all day long. And I found a lot of resistance and I found a lot of CEOs that just couldn't buy in and they were still holding on that they thought they could do it the way they wanted to do it. And what we ended up figuring out is the, the, the fail rate of that was high and they hadn't experienced the pain yet. So our ideal client then shifted to the fact that they had to experience the pain of throwing away $200,000 on a bad sales hire and missed market opportunities. And our best client was the one who had done that three years in a row and went through five salespeople and couldn't figure out why anyone would be successful. Then they'd look at our fees and go, well, this is less than what I've already thrown away. So let's go ahead and make this happen. But I was selling to somebody who hadn't yet experienced the pain. And so they were to focus on themselves still being able to solve the problem. So we had to shift who our client was. Have you had to adjust your inbound outbound approach in the last, well, I guess in 2020 specifically, I'm, I'm curious about, did it go from outbounding to inbounding? Did it go from inbounding to, oh my gosh, we have to start, start prospecting. I'm curious, um, I'm curious about how that equation is working for you now where you're at. For us personally or for what we were doing for our clients? No, for what you're doing personally. Yeah. So uh, I had a salesperson in 2019 that worked for us for eight months and we weren't able to prove out the role that we needed that person there because of the nature of our business. In 2020, we started off the year with a very high demand. The economy obviously was fantastic. People were spending money freely. And we had a $1.2 million pipeline. We just closed out 2019 at 1.5 million. I had a large team. We had business coming in left and right. Obviously that all stopped. In December of 2019, if you're following this timeline, so right before then, we became a HubSpot agency partner. I took the inbound marketing certification and I fell in love with inbound marketing. And I realized that we needed to eat our own dog food and HubSpot said, you should be your own best case study. So we set up our HubSpot and our inbound marketing methodology 
And that is how we've been able to secure clients. So we have no outbound efforts. Everything is through our inbound marketing methodology. It was so successful, even in the midst of the shutdown and everything happening that we started shifting. You didn't ask me to say this, but I'm telling you, our clients spend and in some cases, even dissolving a BDR, small BDR, SDR teams and shifting the spend into inbound marketing because buyers were working from home. They're not real active on the phone. They've got kids in the background. They've got zoom gloom all day long. They are a little, you know, does their work phone forwarding? Do you know their mobile number? Can they fit in an extra call in their work day? They're trying to wear so many hats. The buyer shifted the way they, they were accepting and taking sales conversations. It's leveled out a little bit now, but Initially, we decided since we were having such a challenging time, we watched the numbers and metrics drop dramatically on outbound calling and even um, on email response that a lot of our clients that were willing to fight through the pandemic as we shifted their spend from outbound sales to inbound marketing and the numbers went through the roof. And what we were able to do is to intersect the buyer when they were actively in awareness stage and searching through different marketing methods online and intercept with them and pull them into the brand and then have that seamless process to take them through the funnel. We are now getting back that we've seen things level out a little bit more. We're getting some call structures back. We're having people get back into the office a couple of days a week. People are figuring this thing out and getting back into a little bit more of a norm. We are now investing back in some of the outbound tactics, but we relied heavily, not just for us, but for our clients uh, for about a six month period on inbound marketing. It's so fascinating to hear Mary talk about inbound marketing and demand gen tactics. This is a woman, for those of you who don't know, in 2017, Richard and I were like, Mary, meet LinkedIn. This is a good uh, tool that you should become familiar with. So what a- She was booking meetings while we were there, while we were in Costa Rica. Like we ran this exercise, it was hilarious. Yeah, that's true. Do you remember that, Mary? You actually like literally booked a meeting. I did. I closed it too when I got back. Boom. How about, how about that? Scott, Scott, Scott and I are, are equally excited for you and massively jealous. Stop it. I closed, I cl- wait, wait, wait. I want to be in the cool club. I closed a, a deal from the, uh, the hammock on the, on the, on the beach. Not this that year, not that year, but in February. <laughs> That's true. It's your turn now, Richard. So it, it is my turn. So, so, you actually answered part of the question of what did you what did you learn to get right from someone mm-hmm. up to because you, you shared some of the the moldy cheese. Talk about the you know when you think about this you did you did you, is this what you built over the last eighteen months and now you've figured out through your own trial and error and being your own case study that oh we could dial this in for in a year for a client or six months for a client like. Because, you know, as we know, the, the more we do it, the faster we get at it, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been in business now for three years. Right. And the life cycle of our client is 12 to 18 months. And we've had an opportunity to go through full cycle with a lot of companies. And what we have found is the early days, sales only focus is we, we had some good growth. We had couple of small sub 1 million where we 2X or 3X. We had a, a war startup phase client that we were able to almost 4X and that was great. But the challenge increases when you start working with 10, 15, $20 million companies, which 
20 million is really the highest of where I want to be. We have a $53 million client right now, and we're solely attacking one specific problem in their organization. But I prefer to work with companies in that five to 20 million range because we have movement there and they're typically not too big where they've developed so many problems that it's just a hot mess. I want to get to them while they're in growth mode and I want to change them from growth mode to scale mode, but I have to, I have to rebuild what they have from an infrastructure standpoint. And every time I say I, I mean my team. And so to answer your question, what kind of growth are we seeing now after we made the pivot to this full service model? We, I'll give you one case study example. We have a company that we brought on that had done 15 million in 2019. They were at a projection and a run rate to do about 12 million in 2020. So not only had sales plateaued, but they had dropped. They lost their largest account that was producing about $600,000 a month. And they lost that account right when the pandemic hit. They were advertising for Honda. And Honda wasn't going to advertise during April, May, or June. And so they shut that down. We were able to not only replace that revenue, but we were able to take this company through implementing the infrastructure, the strategy, doing the talent development, bringing in inbound marketing, all the things that we do, bringing in HubSpot. By mm, September, they had their highest grossing sales months in history at $2 million and pushed a million dollars to the bottom line. In October, they did 2.2 or 2.3 million on that and had close profitability as well. So you can see from April to September, the type of growth, and we should get them close to 20 million this year. That's the type of work that our team does. So it makes a difference when you add in marketing and RevOps and the other components. It can go faster. It can go way faster. that's what I wanted to understand. What do you think if, if someone's, they've got this stuff, right? Like, or they have these gaps that you're finding, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and not to pitch you, but where do they even start? Like, how do they know which, which whack-a-mole to hit? Because, oh, I got this marketing disconnect from sales, but then I've got customer success and I've got this, you know, you know, this, is it like, where do you start the whack-a-mole game? Yeah, it's a really in-depth process. And Our first week with the client is what we call our observe and shadow week. And leading up to that, we ask for a plethora of historical information and recordings of sales meetings, client meetings, anything they can send us. Our team does a significant amount of pre-work. When we do our kickoff, we attempt to be as knowledgeable as possible. And we have a joke in our company. We have to learn new industries and companies overnight in order to be successful in our role. There is no ramp up period for us. We all have that. (laughs) It's like, whoo, crash course. But the first week is looking underneath every rock in the company under every facet of everything that touches and has to deal with revenue. In addition to understanding their technology roadmap, competition, looking if it's more of a, a widget that they're manufacturing and understanding supply chain. And we, we have to look at all parts of it because we also can't scale a company's revenue and then crash them on the operation side or ability to deliver. So we have to look at everything in our first week. From there, because we've done this with 100 companies, we are able to 
give very good insight on where they should prioritize. But when we present our gap analysis, it's typically a lengthy process. We show them, we already prioritize ahead of time. Here's where we think your low hanging fruit is. This is where I think we can get the biggest turnaround. We also know our clients that are a little bit more budget conscious than others. And they're looking for this program to self-finance. So they want some quick wins to get some more revenue flowing in. Typically we find that in the world of account management because I've noticed that most companies have millions of dollars sitting in unsold revenue in their base for upsell and or cross-sell. And then there's like zero strategy for anything that has to do with the word sales and account management. And so that's a quick place that we can find revenue, but we have to understand the goals of the organization, where they want to go, how, how quickly they can sustain scale on their ability to deliver and expand. And we put all these pieces together and then we prioritize. And when we deliver the gap analysis, it's to gain alignment. And it is a process. We sit with their entire executive team and leadership team. When we go through and say, here are our findings, we tell them our priority, they, they align, they select, we tell them the budget for what the next five to 11 months are going to look like. And then at that point we go into execution. I want to pivot us out of this a little bit. Please. And you've been increasingly active on, you know, podcasts and, and blogging and webinars and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen you, I've seen you be involved and passionate in mentorship and talking about women in sales and entrepreneurship and being a mother and all of these, the combination of all the things that you do. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the, the conversations you're having and the tips you're having, you know, behind the scenes and offline with other women who are, you know, trying to make a name for themselves in sales, make a name for themselves in leadership go out on their own and start businesses and scale them like you've done. Um, you know, what, what are the things that you're, you're telling them and what tips can you give to the, the women in our audience who are, who are listening? Yeah. Um, one, I'm an openly faith-based CEO and I have found that having courage and speaking my truth on social platforms where it might be slightly frowned upon or different is actually extremely well-received. I've received dozens of in-mails and DMs, text calls from women, especially that find a lot of encouragement in how I lead and how I talk about my team and, and company and clients. Additionally, when the pandemic shutdown happened in March, we lost 60% of our revenue in a three-day period. And it was a very challenging three days. I felt like I had made great sacrifices as a wife and a mom for two and a half years of growing my company. I was not present. I was traveling every week. I left the house every day about 5.30. I missed every morning with my son. Um, He didn't want me around him at night. I wasn't allowed to do bedtime. I couldn't sit next to him at dinner. I wasn't allowed to touch or play with his trains. And my husband was carrying the weight for all of us graciously. He's an incredible man. And I thought that was the right approach. I thought, because I'm an entrepreneur and I'm growing a company, therefore at all costs, I will make it happen. I had the wrong head on my shoulders. The pandemic shutdown caused me to grieve a significant loss and allowed me to go through a breakthrough. I watched what I had built over three days crumble down quickly when I didn't think it could get worse. It got worse. 
And I remember sitting on the floor with my husband and my son playing trains. I wasn't allowed to touch them, but I was sitting on the floor and I just started crying. I just started bawling. And what I had happened is I looked at my son and realized I didn't really know what he looked like. Like I didn't really know the lines and shape of his face. And I was looking at him like I hadn't looked at him before. And I realized that so much distraction and so much stress and pressure of this company that I was growing, even when I was with my family, I wasn't even present. I wasn't even looking at them. I wasn't even in the room mentally with them. And all of a sudden I'm like, I am so misaligned in my life right now. And where I started to grieve the loss of what I had built in the company and everything I'd worked so hard for, I realized that I hadn't built my house, even my life on the rock, which comes from the scripture that if you build your house on the rock, on the foundation, when the winds and storms come, the house is left standing, but the fool who builds it in the sand, it will not last through that storm. And so I felt like we went through this period of shaking, (laughs) we all did, but I still had some good things left standing. And I realized I didn't do this all wrong, but I have a very scaled down version left. And I realized what was left, what was built on the rock. And I realized I need to rebuild my house, my life, my company, my relationship with my son. And a lot of women have So I shared this story and what I have done since that point to restore the relationship with my son and my husband, I have rebuilt our company. We are more profitable than we've ever been. We're getting better results for our clients than we ever have. The quality of life for all of our team members with a work life, work from anywhere, balance, complete flexible schedules to be parents, to be spouses, to have mental health days, to do whatever they need to do during this time and take care of themselves. We're all flourishing because we had a moment with a reset and women, especially those wives and moms out there, it is a battle that no one will understand unless you are a wife and a mom and scaling as a professional, whether it's as an executive or scaling through the ranks, it is a daily conscious decision to choose and prioritize. And it's hard. And so the last several months after I shared my story, first time on on an interview, I started to have a lot of people (laughs) show up in my messages, mostly women, and they were looking for that mentorship and the guidance. And the, the number one thing is they were looking for somebody who could just say, it doesn't have to be the way the world says it should be. That each person's own success and definition of success and the way that they prioritize and build their life, that we have to move away from the thinking of all the challenges and all of everything that could go wrong and start asking us, but what if it could be? And what if it could be right? Let me explain. I thought in my head, I had a belief system that in order to be a high powered, successful CEO, that I had to sacrifice those things with my family. I had to put it all, all work, all effort a woman close to me, another CEO challenged me and said, but what if your workday was like nine to three? So you could have your mornings with your son and afternoons. And I laughed at her and gave her a traditional Mary face of, are you flipping kidding me? What is wrong with you? I don't work nine to three. Don't you know who I am? I'm a hustler. I'm a grinder. I'm a former number one rep. I've sold millions. I don't work nine to three. And I gave her this look like you're an idiot. And 
I drove home from that women's event and this was pre-pandemic and I realized, but what if she was right? What if a mom and a wife and a CEO could build a company around a nine to three and be present at home? It was a belief that didn't even exist in my head as a possibility. Q shut down. <laughs> the decision was made for me. I had a lot less work to do and I was stuck at home with my family was restored. We cured it all. And now we rebuilt the company and guess what hours I work. Do you really do nine to three? That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Sometimes That's four. Mm -hmm. yeah. I I'm with that, my son every I need every that morning. white paper. <laughs> Can you create that white paper and ebook? I will gladly pay $49.99 for that ebook in a heartbeat. I just made a sale. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Man. I don't, there's, I don't even want to go anywhere else after that because that whole segment was just amazing. Yep. Right there. And uh, kudos to you for being self-aware enough to, and reflective enough to like recognize that that was going on um, and do something about it, whether it was a forcing function because of the pandemic or not, you still made the, made the adjustment and you're, and you're sticking with it and you're thriving from it. I think Mary's good at that. I think that's, again, that's, you know, you came to surf and sales completely out of your box, you know, out of your comfort zone. This has thrown you out of your comfort zone, business-wise, personal-wise, like you respond well. Um, Thank you. So but Mary's also a really good example of somebody who, who um, makes decisions relatively quickly and powerfully. Right. And not deliberating forever on something like the moment of the light bulb goes off and it's like, boom, change, spring into action, adjustment, full commitment. So this has been awesome, Mary. We uh, have loved having, having you here and it's good to catch up with you again. Is there anything we can do for you? I don't even know. We, I don't, maybe we helped her like a couple of years ago, but now like. Right. I need I need help from her. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know, maybe there's oh something. Gosh. I'm so thankful that we got together and did this. It's so long overdue. And um, this is amazing to come back together with you all today. We, Scott, at the opening of this, you teased that there was a big announcement coming. And I, maybe that's just what I'll leave it with. We are in the middle of a rebrand and I cannot wait to launch the new brand. So SalesBQ will stay. SalesBQ is going to, we have a free sales training room online and an amazing community. They are quota crusher, quota crusher community. They're free sales training and blog and podcasts. And so we're keeping that alive. And we are spinning off the work that we do from a consulting and staff blog standpoint to grow revenue under a new brand. And I cannot wait to launch that. And all of this will launch in December. So thank you for teasing that out. And now people can stay tuned. Super exciting. Only a couple of weeks away. Yeah. And, uh, and, and she did share it with us, so we won't. But I will tell you, it's epic. Right. <laughs> but how she's rebanding is like... Out category category defining it's amazing so it's really cool so it's pretty good it's yeah. true it's pretty good and i'm super jealous that i didn't think of it exactly <laughs> <laughs> yes this is all the validation like i ever needed oh you exactly. put a huge smile on my face <laughs> the name of it is so we'll have to have mary back maybe in uh in yeah yeah in season yeah. two we're getting towards the end of season one richard i don't know if i you know, know. 
I know we'll have to we'll have to have have Mary come on and we'll we'll do something around leadership and entrepreneurship and I love like I really love what you said about what you don't really understand about you know a, a working mom wife and entrepreneur like that to me really like just sort of lit up my eyes a little bit because um, I I do think there's a different level of pressure that that women put on themselves um, whether it's cultural or whatever it is but. Um, it's fascinating. So thank you, Mary. And, and, and by all means, thanks to Findum and Lead411 and Vidyard and Perception Predict and Gong, our sponsors, which we always love and appreciate. So thank you so much. And Mary, awesome to see you and catch up with you. Oh, I'm so jazzed. Thank you guys so much. Have a good end of the year. Look forward to the announcement. Thank you.